Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast documents the oral history of contemporary art, film, and architecture from around the world. Today, we revisit one of our live studio sessions from 2018, The Art of Obsolete Media. First, let's reintroduce the four Miami-based artists whom we invited to share their passion for bygone technology. Baron Shearer, Kevin Arrow, Martha Raoli, and Terence Price. Baron Shearer and Kevin Arrow operated a shared studio space and repository for all kinds of old media under the name of Obsolete Media Miami from 2015 to 2018. In this program, you'll hear Shearer introduce the work of legendary filmmaker Jonas Mikas and talk about his own complex film and video installation project, presented in Miami and Australia in 2018. Shearer opened a new studio space in February 2019. In 2020, he'll launch the Moving Image Alliance, a nonprofit media arts resource and service organization to support contemporary moving image arts based on pre-digital cinema practices and technologies. Kevin Arrow will take us on a tour of the obsolete media space at the edge of Miami's design district. In early 2019, Arrow established Media and Archival Studies, MAS, Miami, with Stephanie Marie, the manager of Special Collections and Archives at the Miami-Dade Public Library. Among his upcoming local collaborations are a live cinema and sound experience at Bakehouse Art Complex, the activation of a planetarium dome at Booker T. Washington High School, and the screening of a Maya Duren film at the North Miami Museum of Contemporary Art. Martha Raoli, the artist and writer, introduces us to her performance with a manual typewriter. She now produces her own radio show called Etherwave Hour, featuring live theremin. You'll find her on Jolt Radio every Saturday at 2 p.m. <laughs> On today's program, you'll hear Terence Price talk about creating a body of work around family photo albums and home movies for his solo show at Art Center South Florida, now known as Oolite Arts. Since presenting his exhibition, Dancing in the Absence of Pain, in early 2019, he's been preparing for other upcoming shows and completing a residency with Ulite that will end in December 2019. Good morning. This is Fresh Art International, and I'm Kathy Bird. I have three guests with me. Baron Shear. Welcome. And Terrence Price. Good morning. And Martha Raoli. Hey, hey. We are here because we're inspired about obsolete media. What inspired us to talk about the subject was discovering a stunning resource right here in Miami, a collection of analog and arcane media that inspires many people in the city and far beyond, too. We have in spirit today a pre-recorded segment brings Kevin Arrow into the studio with us today. He's a collaborator with my friend here, Baron Scherer on Obsolete Media here in Miami. But first, just to set the stage, I want you to hear some Obsolete Media. Baron shared the sound of projectors. Right, that's very typical of the studio, to hear the sound whirring in the background while we work. I think it informs a lot of the rhythms of the works that we make, you know, whether they're on film or video. That's very common. This is one of my favorite projectors. It's very sturdy. Librarians can use it. It's very easy. 
It's called an achy 16-millimeter. Uh, and it sounds super cool. Let's hear it. So that was the sound of a projector, and Baron, being the specialist that he is, wants to clarify what sounds we were hearing. Yeah, it was a couple of things. It was the rewinding action. First of all, that was very materialist to listen to that for two minutes on the radio. I like that. So it was a rewinding. I probably watched something. You rewind it, and that takes a while. You know, it's real. It's maybe ten times real time of the projection. You can hear the leaders spooling all over the place, and then the rethread and then the engaging of the mechanics, and then you heard the proper sort of 24 frames a second towards the end. So Baron is one of the co-founders of Obsolete Media Miami, and he's a time-based media artist with a background in moving image archival practice and research, as you can hear. He studied media arts and began as a film archivist, and that led us to the origin story of Obsolete Media Miami. How did it happen? Well, it happened in the course of a weekend. Kevin and I had heard about a grant. It was a Cannonball Wavemaker grant. And we had two or three days to come up with a name and then a concept. And initially what we wanted to do was combine two studios. Like I was working out of a cottage in the backyard and Kevin was working out of his garage. And a lot of similar methods in the way that we work. And we thought that with this team up, we could add sort of a social element to what we do. And that's sort of uh, invite a lot of folks over to see how things are in the analog world. We founded in 2015. We moved into the design district, and um, it's been good stuff. You also were supported by a Night Arts Challenge grant yeah, for this project, so right. that's huge. That was good for us. It helps keep us afloat. You know, I mean, we do things like we do tech, like you said, Kevin may be mentioning soon, analog tech. You know, there are artists that want to present works in their original format, and so we can help them realize this stuff. It might be workflows working with labs yeah. when you have to make prints and things. I know when you launched it in 2016, you had a major event that brought a legendary filmmaker, Jonas Mikas, into the picture here in Miami. And his 1960s diary films on 16 millimeter, and you're thinking that anticipated social media streams the way he documented everything in his life. That's right. I mean, he was he was shooting two or three frames per encounter on 16 millimeter, and it made this sort of rapid-fire blitzkrieg uh, linear diary uh, that's a lot like an Instagram stream. Yeah, we invited him to Miami to present Walden. We wanted to let the community know what we were all about, and, and he's sort of like a godfather of avant-garde cinema. He founded film magazines in the 60s, and he founded the Anthology Film Archive in the early 60s. And he's been very influential to us. 
He was born in Lithuania in 1922, and he was, like you said, at the forefront of the avant-garde in cinema, alternative cinema, and underground aesthetics. This Walden story was a diary of his daily life in New York City, right? Right. It was, it was shot over three or four years, and it's presented chronologically uh, at about three hours. He's shooting 50-foot rolls, which are about three minutes each, several frames per situation. What kind of camera did he use? He used a Bolex, which we still use at the studio today. Um, we helped an artist recently uh, shoot a work on 16mm that's in a gallery right now, and he needed to, to use a Bolex, same cameras as Mika's. That's cool. And if we want to drop a few names about the people he worked with in the city, Andy Warhol, Allen Ginsberg, Kenneth Anger, and other generations that he influenced to this day. Oh, sure. And it must have been amazing to bring him to Miami. It was great. I mean, we, we, we did the presentation. It was a really nice way to introduce ourselves to the community, bring him to the community. You know, I got to, to have chicken with him at Clive's. I mean, it's really great. It's like a dream. So... It was strung together in a chronological order, and he did some overlay of images. Right. Well, what he would do is, being a poet, he would shoot intertitles. They were very poetic to sort of set up what you're about to see. That harkens back to, like, silent cinema, where you want to explain what's happening without sound. He would also needle drop music, you know, records, and to make soundtracks. It was mostly non-sync, meaning because he was just shooting a couple of frames, he wasn't shooting sound film. He posted the sound. It's very cool, and we are lucky enough that... He gave us permission to play part two of Walden for you. It's a very short segment. As you heard, it's hours long, the whole experience. Did they play the entire experience when he came here? We did. We played the whole thing. You know, at first I said, well, because it has circulates in parts. And he's like, no, we got to show the whole thing. I'm like, well, let's do it. And uh, people stayed. It was great. It's fantastic. Awesome. Where did this unfold? It was in the design district at event space called... um, Flamingo Plaza? Yes. Well, let's hear from Jonas Mikas. Santa Teresa shall discover that it has gone out. 
So how did you like that? The philosophy of Jonas Mikas. I could not resist sharing that. What do you think, Terrence? I don't know. That was really deep. It fits obsolete media perfectly. How I like to view, you know, using film and everything, not craving everything that's new that's coming out, but sticking to something that's more analog. Yeah, I mean, I felt like could have been a, a guru. felt like I was listening to the Bhagawan. <laughs> you know what, though? There's a real... The images are incredibly kinetic. This is a new context, just hearing the audio, but mm -hmm. like the, the images are like a blitzkrieg of happenings over you know months and months wow. uh, because this is a three-hour movie shot over, say, three years. So you might see several months within this recital. So it's a lot to process when you're, when you're experiencing it. I love the challenge always. That's why I'm here doing Fresh Art International on the radio because... I love that challenge of experiencing art, a facet of it that you hadn't maybe thought about, the value of it, the depth of it, and that idea that he communicates about taking it all in and maybe stop talking about it, just do it. And obviously, I think that's a motivating call for artists and all of us who are pursuing our passions. And I loved how thoughtful and quiet and not afraid of a bit of silence. So how could you top that event? That was quite a way to launch Obsolete yeah, Media. Yeah, well, it's good to make a statement, you know. I mean, it's helped us realize other projects and sort of open up to the community, have people stop by like Terrence did and um, make new works. You know, people have been invited to the studio to, to create things based on what they see there. We always try to hit two or three points in the mission statement with every project that we, that we do. And what is the mission statement? Find new contexts for analog media. And I'm not so much a Luddite, and I only deal with analog. It's just, it's just another resource. And, I mean, I started in film school, and, and we had to make multi-track films and that sort of thing. Um, but it's a lot easier to work in Final Cut Pro. And so, I mean, we may migrate archival material into the digital realm, do what we have to do, and then export it back to analog for display. So I'm, I'm always kind of... You know, back and forth. And I think that is going to be communicated very well in the segment we're about to hear, that idea of migrating, honoring, respecting, working with the obsolete media, but also acknowledging contemporary media as a way to preserve it. So fast forward from the launch to April 2018, when I went to meet Kevin Arrow and recorded my encounters inside Obsolete Media Miami. And Kevin gives us a glimpse into the amazing repository through sound and shares a few stories of his own lifetime obsession with Obsolete Media. So we are in a zone called Obsolete Media. I'm with Kevin Arrow, one of the founders, and this place is just a gold mine of things archaic and fascinating about technology that many of us have lived with for years and now don't know what to do with and obsolete media has an answer correct welcome you're in the miami design district above harry's pizza in an 1100 square foot studio space with windows facing west we see amazing sunsets here every afternoon it's Obsolete Media Miami, also known as OM, and it is... Very zen. Thank you. Um. We figured if you, if you get enough people to say OM, there'll be some positive outcome. Okay. So it's an experiment. It's truly an experimental project, from the name to what's taking place here. But it is essentially a repository for a couple of unique collections of materials and tools that are made available for inquisitive people interested in working with time-based media. Mm -hmm. So I'm a time-based media artist, visual artist, working in whatever media I can get my hands on. We see sound systems here. We see monitors, big and small, reels of film, slides, slide trays, old slide projectors of different generations and regular televisions, VCR players. It's quite 
curious and wonderful all that's here. It's a, a labor of love, that's for sure. Obsolete is kind of in scare quotes because everything that's in here to some degree functions and is of use to an artist. From film projectors to slide projectors to television monitors, these are all tools that are still in use. You know, from the late 60s, artists were incorporating television monitors, CRT monitors, slide projectors, film projectors in their works. And there are many artists in Miami who are working in these modes. And we make ourselves available to assist either individual artists or institutions in realizing their projects. Let's talk about this little one that I noticed when I first came in because we're talking about the sunset. Let's describe the equipment. It's making this sound. Yeah, so this is a Telex Caramate 4000. I guess in 1978, this would have been a state-of-the-art presentation device, perhaps used for schools, universities, or traveling salesmen, trade shows. It takes a Kodak carousel for 35 millimeter slides. So you can put a tray of 80 slides on top of it. It's got a handy carrying handle that indicates that it's made to be portable and be on the go. It looks like a small television set for those who aren't here. It's a square box. It, and uh, it also has a nifty tape deck on the side so you can put a cassette recording into the player, close the box, and then hit play. It's a visual observation, and we call it a radar visual case. Or it can simply be called a radar case. If the sighting occurs quite close to the observer, we call it a close encounter. If it is merely close, we call it a close encounter of the first kind. If the UFO reported... So what you were just listening to was an excerpt from a mixtape that was created for an exhibition called The Secret Life of Plants, in which I did a presentation that utilized materials from mid-century, 1950s, 1960s, slide presentations on UFO research. And there was an audio cassette that was discovered with these 35 millimeter slides. So it was a slide presentation based on the UFO phenomena. And interestingly, this slide machine just ate the cassette uh, oh, no. tape. But it's okay, these things, what's beautiful about this stuff is these things can be repaired. Sometimes cassettes get eaten and then you can just tape them together again and they'll continue working. But the fact that this guy ate a cassette tape, he, he's been behaving for a number of years and he's just decided to misbehave. Uh-oh. So, so you can see the ghosts in the machines. They, they all have unique personalities. And this one, the slideshow that's on it is of different sunsets. Yeah, so as I've, I've been collecting 35 millimeter slides now for 30 years maybe or more, I've amassed 100,000 slides. I mean, I stopped counting back in the mid-90s and these slides just continue coming to me. And as I go through them, I make categories of slides that I'm interested in. And this is one thing I've noted that people... Like today with Instagram, people like taking pictures of sunrises or sunsets. And each time they take a photograph of a sunrise or a sunset, I like to think that, well, that is the best one yet. You know, when you think about looking at sunrises and sunsets, we have a finite amount of them to enjoy in our lives. This is sort of a reminder that, you know, you have to treat each one as if it's the best one yet, because one day it'll be the last one that you see. So these have been disconnected from their photographers. I don't know who took them, and I don't know where the locations are. Many of them are on the beach or on the side of a lake or something, but it's just photographs of beautiful sunrises and sunsets. And there's 80 in the tray of slides here, and you can imagine maybe we get 80 years or beyond in our lives. So it's sort of a symbolic work about a life cycle, if you will. The moment this project started in around 2015, the moment we announced what we were doing, the universe resonated and 
the community opened up and things just started appearing here. You know, we've been reached out to from different art institutions. They have no use for slide projectors anymore or their slides or their film projectors. And would we be interested in taking care of these things? And more often than not, we say yes, providing it's working. They're used in exhibitions. Well, there's a show opening this evening that we sort of gave a gentle assist to for the artist William Cordova, who wanted to use small television monitors. We helped him set his project up. We helped the PAM procure machines for Dara Friedman's exhibition, Perfect Stranger, had seven works that were using 16 millimeter film projectors. For the three months of that exhibition, we were very much involved in making sure that every time you went to see that show, it looked like day one, that the films were nice and squeaky clean, the projectors were running you know, the way they were supposed to run. There's other projects in which we're helping artists who need to transfer work from one format to another. I mean, if you're working in media, you always have to be aware that this material needs to migrate from one format to another if you want to continue working with it. If you have motion picture film, you might want to digitize them. That's sort of one of the goals, not to keep this information, but share this information and show people how to do what they need to do as opposed to just doing it for them. I'm always incorporating this material into my own work because it's something that I love working with. When I was young, there were Super 8 films in the house. My father would you know, every time there was a birthday party, he'd pull out a Super 8 movie camera and lighting kit and blast all the people in the party with his bright movie lights and document much in the same way that we're all documenting things on social media. He was shooting movie film. We also bought movie films of cartoons and serial dramas and Batman movies and uh, these would be lying around the house too and I remember one time kind of getting in trouble because I was cutting them all apart and I found that you can just scotch tape them together and they'll run through the projector kind of roughly but they will play so I was intersplicing Batman scenes from 1930s serial Batman movies into my birthday party and things like that so that was like the earliest brush with time-based media I guess so you got in trouble? Yeah, I got in trouble. Most of my creative efforts when I was uh, young got me in trouble, but uh, I persisted. So that was Kevin Arrow. When I met Kevin and learned all that there was at Obsolete Media, and that was just a glimpse. We talked for over an hour, so I had to just pare it down to a few of his stories. But when we were talking, he mentioned an artist that's here with us in the studio. That's Terrence Price. Hi. Hello. Terrence was somebody who sought out the help of Obsolete Media. And when I heard Kevin say that, I said, I'm going to find Terrence, get him to come in here and tell us about how he works, what he found inspiring at Obsolete Media. I love all the, the old objects that I don't even know about growing up in I guess when the digital age started to come along in the 90s there were still like VHS tapes and old cameras and everything but I was more brought up into a digital age. Terrence is an artist in residence at Art Center South Florida and as you can hear a big fan of obsolete media Terrence shoots photographs on real film, okay? Yeah. He's not working with a digital camera. He also is a fan of vinyl. Vinyl, yes. And belong to a social club. Yeah. I go to the Vinyl Social Club every Friday. Starts at 9 till late. You just sign up, bring your records, and start playing. 20 this minutes is in up. Opalaka. Opalaka, yes. You also... Like you said, you grew up in a digital universe, but you had yeah. VHS influences. How was uh, that? 
Well, my grandfather, he, my grandmother bought him a camcorder, and growing up, he would always carry this big camcorder and record all of our family events, family gatherings, birthday parties, his trips, or anything. So there was always some type of camera in my face growing up, and I think that kind of like influenced me to get into photography and also shooting video and making films. So why did you choose to work with real film instead of a digital camera for your own work? What's motivating you to choose analog? Well, I know, but I don't know. I'm still, like, every day that I shoot film, I feel more and more attached to it. I just feel like it's it's something real. Like, digital is real, too. You're creating this mirror of everything around you, but... When you're shooting analog, you know that you have to actually take care of this because there might not be somebody that can fix it. Or the fact that there's only 24 to 36 shots on a roll of film or this VHS tape only has like 120 minutes on it. So everything that you capture in it has to be, it doesn't have to be something, but it has to be really worth it. And I feel like when I'm shooting film or making a film or anything, I'm like really more in the moment you're thinking through like what is the best shot here yeah so i'm not just holding my finger on the shutter button shooting 20 images at once we featured on social media one of your images Mm -hmm. of a little boy shooting a basketball yeah you caught that like i don't know i knew he was going to shoot it he was at half court so i hurried ran behind him and I just sat there and waited until I seen the ball release out of his hands and then I took the shot. This is a perfect photograph, a perfect still. It's just one example, I know. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) But I can see how much time you take with your work. What are you going to do with your grandfather's movies? Well, right now I'm going through all of the tapes and I'm watching them and I'm basically taking notes, labeling down each part that's in it that I feel is important to me and to everybody else and I'm just gonna record them like off of the tv I want to display them and make like a mixtape or like a montage video and have it with digital footage also of now because I'm still living in his house so I can you know retrace some of his steps that he shot with the back with the VHS tapes and everything. We have three examples to share with you that Terrence passed on to me. And what we did is we put a little Super 8 sound between each one, so you'll be listening for three scenarios from his family. And let's say the first one. First one is... Little girls getting their hair done. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Eatonville, Orlando. And the second one is a backyard barbecue. Where did that take place? That took place at my grandparents' house. And they had a swimming pool. I think they were probably the only ones with the swimming pool. So that house was always like Mecca. Like the whole family would come there and party all the time. Well, the third one I chose to share of these wonderful pieces that Terrence offered me is a baptism that takes place in that swimming pool. Yeah, same swimming pool. Let's listen. Because you look good with your hair being done. <laughs> That's when you're at your best. I 
that right there with bridge? Okay, okay. In the name of So thank you, Terrence. You're welcome. Sounded great. Thanks. Next up, we have Martha Rowley. And Martha's an, a writer. I met a couple of years ago. I just realized this morning because I found myself on a quest for this obsolete media artist who doesn't work in film, but works with typewriters and theremins and is dedicated to a DIY practice underground and off the grid. So you will not see her on Instagram or Facebook or any of that. Right, Martha? That's right. And so to seek her out, I had to call, I had to text. I reached someone in Estonia to find (laughs) how to find her in Miami. So recent projects, the one that caught my attention that I knew about but didn't get to see was your typewriter performance at the Paris Art Museum as part of an exhibition from the truer world of the other, the typewriter art from Pam's collection, which figures largely from the Sackner collection, the beautiful collection of books and typewriter typewriter art. art. Yes, they're amazing. So tell me, what's your relationship to typewriters? I think it started when I moved into Jack Kerouac's townhouse in Chelsea. Well, that would do Um, it. He no longer lived there. (laughs) But as a writer, I became really interested in his process. And so I was trying to write from this very physical space. Um, It was exciting because what I wrote did not disappear. And there was an immediacy, a materiality that I hadn't experienced on the computer. And then, of course, I became enamored with the sound and also with the way that my body had to interact with this machine. All of my work is concerned with the gestures that I make interacting with objects. So for me, my interest in typewriter is not a sort of archival or nostalgic, but it's necessary for me to create with a hard machine, like a dance partner, if you will. Then my interest evolved into a more performative aspect, considering as well the paper and the artifact as a sort of score for the dance, if you will. And this particular one, let's let's just zero in on this performance because you were wearing some kind of a you were wearing a visor and headphones, and you had this beautiful silver typewriter. And you were responding to a specific song. My typewriter is this beautiful chrome-plated Smith Corona. It's called The Ghost. I was listening to the song Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys, and I thought it was important for me to remain enclosed in this space. When I'm listening to the song, I'm trying to transcribe it. It's kind of an absurd and impossible task to transcribe music because it's flowing. You can't rewind it. It's not like if you're taking a dictation. So the act is necessarily impossible. And I think of myself when I'm doing it as a medium. This is weird, like glossiola kind of aspect to it where I'm taking in the information and I'm trying to type the words the lyrics as I'm listening to them. So by the time that I'm getting them down on the typewriter, they've gone. It's this constant attempt to be in the now and fighting against the temporality of the song. What you hear is at times there's a disconnect between the sound of the typing keys. I'm not playing to the music. I'm playing as a, not as an accompaniment, but 
as a recorder. Sometimes you just hear the keys that are representing the sounds. The typewriter has all of these beautiful non-alphabetic characters. So those are the ones that I use to try to record the musical notations. But when I hear the lyric, then I'm playing the words. And so there's a concrete poetry that's created from that on the paper that you'll see in the photograph that we shared. I loved how you described this as a meditation Mm -hmm. and used the words chasing the language. Right. Meditation for me is a decision to be constantly forcing myself in the now. And when I'm typing, it's a necessity to keep the words in my brain while they're moving. So it's like a rub, right? It's like I have to be in this sort of like enclosed little cocoon where what's happening around me is outside of my experience. And so that's sort of an opposite but beautifully resonant idea that would be understood by Jonas Mikas. For sure. I love that. Let's hear what it sounds like for Martha to communicate with a typewriter and good vibrations. Wow, Martha. Quite the challenge. Very physical work. And endurance. Yes, definitely. And endurance, and you mentioned the importance of failure in your work. For sure. A big success story is about to come up, and that would be Baron. He has a huge project coming up called the Film Art Expanse for one night only in the Live Arts Lab at Wolfson Campus of Miami-Dade College. Tell us about it, Baron. It's something involving a lot of obsolete media. <laughs> right. Basically, what we're doing in the studio and Wolfson Archives, which is a moving image archive downtown, a lot of collaborators on this, we're presenting um, an expanded cinema work. And the work is actually a viewing of other works. Within the course of an hour, we're going to have five film projectors and five custom-built screens and historical avant-garde works from the 20s to the 90s all at once. So it's going to be pretty explosive. It's something that's sort of in the expanded cinema tradition, and that was that term popularized by Gene Youngblood in the early 70s where you sort of like, what is cinema? Cinema's more than coming into a theater and sitting down and watching a screen. It can be so many other things, and so this is sort of in that vein. So you can watch a lot of movies in a very small point of time. 45? Approximately. I mean, 16 millimeter films. Right. It's, it's about five hours of films. I'm paring it down. I'm still waiting for all the films to come in from 
archives in Europe and the U.S., but I'll have about six hours of films to sort of pare down to five and then sequence over five reels to be projected at once. And they all range from like a minute to seven or eight minutes a piece. They're non-narrative, so when you experience this, you're not following narratives across the five screens. It's all experimental works. Like sometimes the sounds within the images in an individual screen are clashing. Why did you choose these films, these 45 Uh films? What drew you to those particular aesthetics? um, A lot of my works are by artists that I admire, and this is an opportunity for me to see things that I haven't yet. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm really going to be keen on that weekend before when I get to experience these things for the first time, maybe half the show I've never seen before. And so that's where the editing process will come in. And I think I'll sequence them all five and sort of, I have to be thinking about how they're going to relate to each other based on their time. I'll make like an Excel sheet where I know this one ends here. You know, it's movie editing in a way. That's amazing. You want to name some of the artists? Tom Anderson, uh, Sarah Allridge, uh, Robert Breer, Stephen Brumer, Paul Clipson, Storm De Hirsch, Owen Land, Rose Lauder, Marie Mencken. I mean, it goes on and on. It's like six or eight decades of people. Are these people that are... Our uh, audience in Miami are going to recognize? They may or may not. I mean, one of the goals <laughs> is that you're getting a primer on avant-garde cinema history in the 20th century, and you might be inspired to seek these folks out. Let's hear how the studio is going to be set up. There's a special design for right. for the experience. Right. It's uh, five screens. Most of the films have soundtracks, so like when you're experiencing it, you may have five soundtracks at once and five images. Some may be silent. They're all kind of peppered. It'll be sequenced. But I did a mock-up in the studio to kind of see how it works. And I think we have a clip of that. Yeah, we do. But before we listen to that, I thought we'd hear one of the sounds just standing on its own before it gets mixed in. Great. And then you'll be listening and see how it all works together. I chose Marie Minkin, Glimpse of the Garden. Okay, so that was Marie Menken with Glimpse of the Garden. And if those birds sounded like they were hyped up, it's because they were electronic. They're heavily processed, and that's from 1957. And so if you focus on that during the screening, and actually if that makes the cut of my edit over next weekend, the visuals for that would be extreme macro photography and like a garden shot on like um, Kodachrome and then transferred over to 16 millimeters. So extreme close-ups of flowers and bees and whatnot with a wild soundtrack so she posted the sound it was they were separate elements that were combined and so you're working with some miami's film and video artists on this right i went to people that work in this tradition over many decades we did a show uh, kevin and i did a show at miami Day college a couple of weeks after the meekest thing in 2016 it was called six on 16 and it was Miami artists from the 70s to the 90s that worked in film original. Some of the folks that were in that show are going to be the projections that evening. So we'll have five projectors and they'll all have cue sheets and they'll sort of perform a reel. And I might mix it up and switch the reels around for the 8 o'clock show. Not sure yet. The ones you shared with me were quite diverse Mm -hmm. in sound. One sounded like a haunted house. Another one was very screechy, experimental. Mm -hmm. And then this pseudo bird song. All of them were very interesting do you want to describe the five we're going to be hearing in this screen test, studio test? Sure. Um, this is a mock-up that I did for the listening audience's benefit. It's five films, and they're all sound. So you may or may not have five soundtracks going at one time through the course of the show. But this clip is going to be Dan Agnew, Doppler Effect from 1968. Tom Anderson, he's a famous film essayist now. From 65, it's called Melting. Uh, Betty Gordon, she's a feminist filmmaker. She made uh, Variety, if you remember that, from the early early 80s. But she started in experimental cinema in the 70s. Owen Land, and of course this track that we just played by Marie Menken. So this is basically the ambience of all five of them at one time.
were just hearing a glimpse, an earful, small earful, of what you'll be hearing during the film Art Expanse. I want to thank Baron Shearer, Terrence Price, Martha Rioli for joining me in the studio today. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you. I enjoyed it. You can listen to our stories anytime. Visit freshartinternational.com to explore more than 200 episodes in our archive. Speaking of archives, a lot have to do with art and film and analog media and experiments that all these artists today are doing in their work. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review Fresh Art International anywhere you go for podcasts. And know that it means a lot that you're listening With the support of followers like you, we've been sharing these conversations since 2011. We invite you to make a one-time donation to Fresh Art International or become a supporting member with a small monthly gift. And right now, because we are a Knight Foundation grantee as well, the Knight Foundation will match every dollar you give. Go to freshartinternational.com and click on the red support button to give what you can to help us support our stories. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.